If you have been here with us for the last uh, season, you, um, you may remember we've been in the book of John. And during the, our time in the book of John, we, we were looking at a principal theme of the book of John, which is the idea of blindness and sight, or light and darkness. At the beginning of John, uh, Jesus, uh, at the beginning of the Gospel of John, the writer, John the Apostle, he says that Jesus was the light of the world which entered into the world, and the darkness did not overpower it. And that's kind of the beginning of that theme in John. And then we looked at Nicodemus in John 3, how Nicodemus, he's a, he's a scribe, he's a Pharisee. He, he is afraid of being outed as one who is believing that Jesus is the Messiah. And so he goes to visit G- with Jesus at night when there is uh, a little bit more secrecy. He's not exactly following Jesus in the open. Uh, after that, we touched on a number of different places in John where, the, where Jesus and the uh, disciples have encounters, and Jesus, specifically in the healing of the blind man in John chapter 9, says to the disciples, we must work the works of him who sent me, that is the Father, while it is still day, for night is coming when no one can work. And then highlighting that theme again in John 7, uh, earlier in the book, Jesus says that these are the ones who walk around at darkness, uh, in darkness, and they stumble. Only those who walk in the light can, can, uh, can not stumble. And so this idea that Jesus is, is presenting that he and his followers, those who, those who are receiving the truth of God, are being brought into light more and more. And so tacking onto that, at the end of, at the end of John, we see uh, Jesus uh, demonstrated as the light of the world through his resurrection. So since Lent, that was what we covered during Lent, after that, we've been looking at the different gospel accounts throughout the, uh, throughout the gospels, uh, sorry, the resurrection accounts throughout the gospels. We looked first at John's, of course, and we looked at how Jesus is opening up his disciples to the, the dawn of a new day. We, we saw how Jesus at the beach he arrives before it's, it's morning, right? And he encounters the disciples. Uh, even here at the beginning of this encounter, there are reading which we just heard, it's emphasized once again at the beginning of the day, at the, right at the breaking of dawn. And so both in John as well as Matthew, but especially Mark, highlight the resurrection as the culmination of God's new work in the earth. It's as if God is beginning a new creation through the resurrection. And so, as we encounter these passages, I want to continue to remind us of these themes, because as we see today, we're we're kind of working towards ascension that's going to be coming up in two weeks. And so, um, resurrection, the idea that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, is amazing. And in no way do we wish to diminish that, but there's still something that remains for, for us that we need God to do on our behalf. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. So uh, I want to look at the elements of this passage. I'm actually only going to be covering, I'll explain for the perp, uh, what purpose uh, for in a minute, uh, but I'm actually going to only be covering the first eight verses of Mark, and then we're going to do a summary of the book of Mark very quickly, very, very quickly. We're going to just look at verse, a verse here, a verse there. We're going to look first at the, the preparation of the body that these women are intending to do and what that says about their belief of what's happening. We're going to look at the stone and what it, it depicts for us as being an immovable object, something that we can't deal with, like death. 
Uh, we're going to look at this angelic encounter. Now, again, it does say it's just a, he's just a young man, but I'll give uh, sufficient evidence why he's an angel uh, in harmony with the other Gospels and this text itself. And then finally, I'm going to make a very brief case, I, I hope to not belabor the point, of why I believe that uh, Mark actually does end at verse 8. Uh, and I'll, I'll just bear with me, hold that out on faith, and, um, and we'll get there. So, Mark's resurrection account, of course, it opens with the women going to prepare the body of Jesus for burial. Uh, and what this means is that they are attempting to preserve the body of, of the Lord uh, because they esteem him, they revere him. Now, the previous chapter and the other Gospels mention uh, that Jesus' body had already been anointed or prepared with either 75 or 100, about that range, pounds of embalming spices. Now, um, if you've never heard of this idea, it it's a little foreign to us if you're maybe, you know, if you have a friend who's an undertaker, maybe you've heard of this. I actually had a friend who worked as an undertaker uh, for, for a while, and it was very interesting to hear all the things that they have to do to the bodies to, to have them be ready for burial. Mark 16, 1 and 2, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they might go and anoint him. And, the very, and very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. So again, Mark highlights the time and the place and the purpose. They're bringing these spices to go um, you know, prepare and, and dress his body. He had been wrapped in a linen shroud or linen cloth. He had been embalmed with uh, myrrh. And yet at this point, the second stage of preparation is, is about to, to happen. Now, what does this tell us about the women? This tells us that they are firmly convinced that Jesus is going to still be dead. Now, that, that may sound like a weird idea, but think, think it through. Jesus had over and over again in the Gospels, both in Mark and as well as the other Gospels, they record that Jesus was going to be raised on the third day. And so the women bringing spices, they are totally still thinking Jesus is going, they're going to show up and Jesus is going to still be dead. When bodies are placed in tombs, they're embalmed and anointed with spices to slow the decomposition. There's actually a psalm which says that the, the Lord is, uh, you know, it's a messianic psalm that basically points out that the Lord will not suffer decay or that you will not allow your Holy One to see de uh, corruption or decomposition. And so it's perhaps theoretically possible that the women are trying to fulfill that prophecy, but I don't think so. I think that they are fully convinced Jesus is going to still be dead, and they've, they're beginning to have lost the hope that he's the Messiah. We looked at that significantly last week in the road to Emmaus uh, in Luke's account, where the two are on the way, and they're mourning, and Jesus comes up to them and, and asks them what they're talking about, and then they say that we had hoped he was the Messiah. We had thought, and what do they say concerning who he is? They said, he was a prophet, mighty indeed. Reversed is the decision from Peter that says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so these women are absolutely convinced that Jesus is dead, and he's going to stay dead. Now, I, I just want to impress upon you the seriousness of that idea. Mark 16, 3, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? This stone is uh, a, a sealant 
on the, the opening to the tomb. If you're not familiar with tombs, uh, we usually bury uh, people in the ground in a casket. And, but still today, if you ever get a chance, go walk around uh, Woodland Cemetery. There are these things that are modern-day tombs. We call them mausoleums. And they are uh, buildings that are off the ground. They're, they're structures. And you can place a body in that structure. Now, uh, one of the features of a tomb was because it, it was so hard to, to actually get a space that would be properly sealed off so animals and moisture couldn't get into the room, they would often use tombs for multiple purposes. And so one of the points of the preparation of the body was so that the next time they had to bring someone in to that room and, and drop them off, it would be bearable. Uh, you know, th so this, this idea that they're preparing Jesus' body for burial means they think he's going to decompose and he's, he's done. And so here they're going to move the tomb and we see that the women are fully expecting Jesus to still be dead, not only from the last point, but to also find the tomb exactly as they had left it. In Mark 15, we didn't, this wasn't in our reading today, but Mark 15, the, the very verse before the opening of this chapter, it says that Mary Magdalene was at the tomb when Jesus had been placed in it and they had moved the stone over the opening. They're totally caught off guard in verse 4. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Now, again, the, large, uh, the largeness of this tomb, consider with me for a moment. How do you get a body into a tomb? You have to carry it into the tomb. So I don't know if you've ever carried another human being. I have. I usually have to do the fireman carry maneuver where I throw them over my shoulder and then I, you know, hold on to them, and I hoist them up. Possibly, I could, if I had the help of another person, I could do the, you know, kind of grunt uh, pickup of a body and then bring them through. Either way, the stone which covers the opening uh, must be very large because the opening itself must be large enough for you or I to get a body through it, to take it into the tomb, right? This is a little practical, but I'm trying to illustrate that this stone is a massive stone. This stone is a stone that you could not move if you did it alone. It would require many people. In fact, the women here are at least three. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices. This is a stone that three women, mature, strong, uh, you know, tall, maybe not tall, but at least mature women, women of, of adulthood could not move by themselves because they asked themselves who will roll away the stone for us. So this is a huge stone. And I think Mark is trying to illustrate the size of this stone as being something that is like death itself. This is what Mark means when he says it's a very large stone. And here in the moving of the stone, we see the power of God in display. What would be absolutely immovable by you or I, God has already, when we show up on the scene, taken care of and moved out of, out of our way. At this point, Jesus is demonstrating that his overcoming of death is like a stone that's been moved for you that you couldn't do anything about. And in this way, we see the gospel in the midst of the story it's not only superimposed on the story, but also contained in the midst of. We all will come to bodily death, and none of us can escape it. Yet what Jesus has done in defeating death becomes for us a promise that we will be raised 
in the resurrection at the end of the age. Many Christians are hoping right now to just die and go to heaven, and they have very little understanding that the New Testament, over and over again, its primary consideration is that you, in your flesh, will see God face to face in the new heavens and the new earth at the end of the age. And so the resurrection, this large stone being a symbol of death, the resurrection is God demonstrating that he has moved this obstacle out of our way already when we show up. What we couldn't have overcome, Jesus has on our behalf. So the women enter the tomb at this point, and they begin to have this encounter with a young man. Verse 5, and they were entering the tomb, uh, and, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Now, uh, we know from the other gospel accounts that this man is actually an angel. So the, the depiction by Mark of saying he's a man, that's, in, that's completely in coherence uh, with, uh, it's in unison with the rest of the scriptures, over and over again depicting angels as, uh, you know, a, ma- a man, a, a being that looks human. And so here there's a man who's dressed in white, and that ties in with our themes that we've been looking at with brightness, with fire, uh, that any time heaven is involved in a situation, any time that God is acting, there's, there's purity, there's brightness, and the being that is on the scene is terrible and terrifying. And so here he's in white, and he says to them, we, we get some indication both of his, uh, you know, being uh, an angel, both by what he says and the knowledge that he demonstrates through what he says. In verse 6, and he said to them, do not be alarmed. So what's the opposite of that? They're probably afraid when they see him. Now, I think that you could argue he, he was there, you know, at the tomb, and so they might have been afraid just about the situation. But I have to believe that if there's a young man sitting on a tomb, you don't uh, just immediately think he's just a stranger. Um, so this, this young man here is, is saying to them, do, do not be alarmed. Don't be afraid. The command from the angel specifically is do not be afraid. And yet these women, as we'll see, uh, they are. He says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And then here's the command, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, there will you see him just as he told you. Like we saw last week, the angel's instruction contains an element of rebuke and a reminder. The angel tells these women plainly that he is in Galilee, just as we saw uh, last week in Luke. He is in Galilee, he is risen, he is not here, and, and then to go to Galilee, There you will see him just as he told you. These were instructions that Jesus Christ himself had given both the disciples and apparently these women because the angel is telling the women that Jesus told them. Uh, Jesus had given these instructions saying that I will be raised up onto the cross and three days later I will will be raised from from death. I'll defeat death and I will come back and, um, and I will visit with you in Galilee. He had told them beforehand to go to a place, and yet the disciples and these women, they are caught completely off guard. They, they require instruction again. 
Peter here is singled out, I believe, to indicate that he's not beyond redemption. If you remember, the the common theme in most Easter, uh, or at least Good Friday services, is Peter's denial of Christ. And that denial is a sufficient, uh, very serious event to disqualify someone in terms of uh, the biblical evidence for them being an instrument of God's future action. Gideon, for example, in the Old Covenant, he demonstrates his faithfulness by following the Lord's command and going and slaying uh, idols and and destroying the the poles and, and such that his father had erected. Gideon demonstrates his faithfulness. It would be a completely different story if Gideon, at the beginning, before he's used by God, erected an Asherah pole his, himself, right? This is what Peter it has basically done. He's denied God's word, he's denied God's command, and instead asserted his own strength and pride, and yet through his denials demonstrates that he is an empty vessel. He's someone who has puffed himself up and yet has no substance. And so here the angel says, go tell his disciples and Peter. And I think specifically the, the angel is intending to say that Peter is not been disqualified. What this says about the grace and redemption and salvation of God for you and I is staggering. In the midst of our deepest, most intense sin and denial of the Lord himself, we, even though we may have magnificent understanding and revelation who Jesus is, in the midst of that, God is willing to forgive. At the time, Peter is the one in the Gospels who, when Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? After asking, who does man say that the Son of Man is? Peter is the one who gets it right. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says to Peter, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal to this, this to you, but it was my Father in heaven. And so the very person who had arguably the greatest present knowledge of Jesus Christ being the fulfillment of the promises to Israel, being the Messiah, being the Son of God, his denial is the greatest possible fall. And here, Jesus, through the angel, gives command through these women to go tell Peter to go to Galilee. This is amazing grace, in my opinion. So here we see the disciples, along with Peter, are being restored. God is not done with them yet. The resurrection changes everything for the story. At, at the end of this story, had this chapter not happened, had Mark 16 not existed, we would have seen Jesus dying on the cross, not being vindicated, the disciples being scattered throughout Galilee, and the gospel basically coming to nothing. But here, through this, we see Peter and the disciples are on the path to restoration. Jesus has risen. He's beginning to rule things through heaven, sending angels to accomplish his purposes, as we'll see highlighted over and over again in the book of Acts, and at this point, being ready to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. The problem of the ending of the book of Mark uh, is literally one of the greatest problems in New Testament scholarship. It's probably the greatest problem in New Testament scholarship. If you've ever read this chapter, um, you may have been confused as to what is going on in your Bible. If you have a Bible with you uh, right now, um, if it's your personal Bible, take a look at it. The, notice there are some brackets around these, these verses, 9 through uh, 20. I think we can see them here at the beginning. Maybe I took them out. Yes, I did. 
9 through 20 are uh, a, an interesting set of verses. Scholarship to understand that um, these, there's some dispute whether or not these verses were originally in Mark's what we call autograph. Now, what that means is not you hand a baseball to a baseball player and they sign their autograph. An autograph, when we're talking about biblical documents, is just the original copy that Mark penned himself. And so uh, many people, theologians, have argued back and forth that these verses either are or are not scriptural. And by no means do I wish to impress upon you one way or the other. We're not going to be preaching from these verses today just because of time's sake, but I'm leaning towards them not being originally authoritative from Mark himself. However, that doesn't mean that they're of no use. In fact, all of these verses are composed of gospel quotations. You can directly see every verse being pulled from another part of the gospel. However, I'm of the opinion that Mark intends to close his gospel at verse 8. Um, the, uh, the, the fact is that, that the earliest manuscripts, the copies of the copies, um, we, we don't have those verses in the earliest copies. Now, that presents a very interesting problem, one that we've never actually had to deal with in, in our uh, sermons here. Although, if you remember, when we covered in, in our time in going to the book of Matthew, we covered the idea of gospel harmonization. And what that means is that the resurrection accounts, although varied in their emphasis, do not present any material that in any way uh, creates a dichotomy or a contradiction. And so we, we talked about a little bit about the difference of taking a picture of someone versus verbally explaining. Uh, their characteristics or what you see about them. Those two different types of, of uh, evidence would highlight or diminish certain things. So also the gospel writers, because of their variance in their resurrection accounts, demonstrate that they didn't, they didn't conspire together to kind of get their story straight. I gave the illustration if you remember, the idea of you and your buddies in, in school, you and your friends in school, you did something bad, and you're called into the principal's office. On the way to the principal's office, what do you do? You, get, you, you, call, a, you call a conference, and you say, okay, guys, we're all going to say this. We, we actually, I believe that it's strong evidence from the, the gospel writers that the fact that they include different information such that no one presents or introduces any contradiction gives more stronger evidence that there was no collusion in the gospel writers in the record of their, their gospels. That is, the gospel writers themselves demonstrate faithfulness, not faithlessness, in the fact that they include slightly different information. It would, it would be much uh, more uh, concerning if they all had penned the exact same thing and then from there represented it as their own work. So these verses um, are just not in the earliest copies that we have. Now, there are some early copies, not earliest, but there are some early copies that have these verses and all the rest of the coffee, copies afterwards have them. Now, just so you understand the, the issue, it's not that those early copies got torn up or something like that. They actually go from Mark to including a next gospel. So it's not as if those copies, the copyist just lost the last page. 
of, of his copy of Mark, it actually is the case that then he went on to produce another copy. So there's tons of ideas. Uh, theologians have debated for centuries back and forth about these issues, uh, specifically after finding older scrolls and older copies and codices that didn't have them. Now that's pretty boring if you're not uh, an academic theologian, in my opinion. But I want to give some evidence why even if these aren't uh, purely Mark's words, they are both beneficial for us to read because they contain direct quotations from the other gospels, but also how even if they aren't, Mark's gospel at verse eight is sufficient for us to have a resurrection account. And why I believe it's fitting that if you need to decide that they're not in, that you can still believe in Mark's gospel. So the argument, uh, just fully showing my cards here, the argument for exclusion seems very convincing to me, and I've changed that opinion a few times. So in no means do I wish to impress upon you that you need to rip these out of your Bible or consider them to be apocrypha or anything like that. I don't want you to lose faith in Mark's gospel. But alas, we don't have time to search out the, the matter concerning 9 through 20. But what I want to do is give a very quick summary of why I think it would be beautiful if Mark did happen to have finished with verse 8. Whether or not they're, they're included, let's turn our attention to how the women respond to the news from the angel, because that's where we're at in this chapter. Verse 8, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. What was the command from the angel? Do not fear. Don't be worried. Don't be anxious. And yet these women, in verse 8, it says, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. They're being apprehended by fear. These are, no, these are not words that are minced about. These are words that are explaining these women have been terrified by what they've just heard and seen and experienced at this empty tomb. It says, and they said nothing to anyone. What was the command? The command in verse 7 was, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So these women directly uh, disobey uh, through, through the circumstances, the command from the angel to not be afraid. And then because of their fear, it says, they said nothing to anyone for what reason? For they were afraid. So they directly disobey both commands from the angel because of the fear that apprehends them. And it's my opinion that this is a magnificent and helpful way, if we had to end the gospel here, that we could get beautiful meaning from it. The women were afraid, and I think this type of fear is less of a terror as in someone's coming at you with a gun or coming, coming to burn your house down, it's less of a terror and more of an amazement, right? This isn't, this isn't a slasher film, if you will. It, this isn't, uh, you know, some horror film. These women aren't terrorized in that they are about to be killed. They're terror, they're, the, the terror, if you could even call it that, or fear that they experience is actually surprise. Uh, it's it's incredulity, it's hard for them to believe what they've seen with their eyes, and at this point, they're running away from the scene because of divine interaction. The resurrection was so absolutely surprising to them that they were left speechless, and as I've already described, I think so is Mark. 
At this point in the gospel, Mark demonstrates here that these women respond to the action of God with fear and amazement, and I think that that's a beautiful place to end. It's an overly common theme in Mark that when people respond to the action of God, they are absolutely, utterly amazed. We're going to take the next five to ten minutes to go through just a quick summary of how Mark could be relabeled in uh, you know, the book of amazement or the amazing Jesus. As in, the book of Mark, more than any other gospel, shows and demonstrates that when God steps onto the scene and intervenes in the lives of people, both with healing, deliverance, amazing miracles, they actually end up more startled uh, because, of, because of God's interaction. Have you ever dropped a brick or a stone in a puddle or a, or a stream or a brook? What does it do when you drop it into the water? It falls straight down, right? What does it do as it's falling? It creates ripples. There's sometimes what you might call a backsplash. There's a little bit of a, uh, you know, kind of explosion of water that breaks the surface tension. If you've ever seen a droplet hit a, or, or a stone be thrown into a pool of water, it kind of erupts, right? This is what it means for something that's heavy and weighty to interact something that's light and transient or mundane. And so when God shows up in, on the scene, prophets of old, especially in the encounter on Mount Sinai with Moses, what happens? The mountains shake and they catch on fire. The earth melts, what is it? Like wax at the presence of the Lord. His enemies fall down before him. What does this say? This says that God's presence, his weighty holiness, interacting in time and space in his creation causes earthquakes, it causes tremors, things get unsettled. And I think that's what Mark is saying through all these examples, as we're going to see. Mark 1, 22 and 27, and they were utterly astonished at his teaching, Jesus' teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Verse 27, and they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. First interaction of Jesus healing someone who has a a demon, uh, casting that demon out, the people say that they are amazed, they're astonished, they're caught off guard. This happens again when Jesus calms the storm. Mark 4, 40, 41, he said to them, why are you so afraid? Now that is, his question there is, why are you so afraid as to think you would have perished in the storm, right? What, rocky, wavy situation, windy situation. He goes on to say, have you still no faith? Verse 41, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him. First, they were afraid of the wind and the waves. And then when Jesus calmed the wind and the waves, what does it say? They were filled with great fear. This has gotten worse. It didn't get better. (laughs) They were afraid for their lives, and after Jesus calmed the storm, they were even more afraid. This happens again in the same chapter with Jesus healing the garrison demoniac. The town is absolutely terrified. Mark 5, 15 through 17. Uh, Sorry, next chapter, actually. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. Okay, so the the situation, again, this is like the the tomb 
already having the stone rolled away. The Gerasene demoniac was one who they would chain to large boulders because he was so violent that he would kill any passersby and he would, you know, attack anyone who was traveling. And he was also so filled with demons that he had, wouldn't wear clothing. He, he was becoming, as Nebuchadnezzar did in, in Daniel, he was reverting to uh, a state of wilderness, uh, a man out in the wild, uncivilized, someone who couldn't be polite or even uh, you know, casually present with other people, he would attack them. He, they came, they saw Jesus and the, the demon-possessed man clothed and in his right mind. That's terrifying to them. And it says, and they were afraid. Verse 16, and those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. What's the response to this town of Gerasene getting rid of their chief problem that they couldn't do anything about? What's their response to the one who solved their greatest dilemma? And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. They're filled with great fear. They're absolutely astonished by what God has done. And yet, in the midst of all their greatest problems being solved when Jesus shows up on the scene, they want him to leave. Likewise, with Jesus in the healing of the women, of the woman with the issue of blood, notice this is after the healing takes place. So the woman has been healed at this point. If you don't remember the story, Jesus is in a crowd. There's this woman who has spent all of her money, literally everything she's done in her entire life has been focused on fixing this problem of what the writer calls the issue of blood, this sort of, you know, either sore or seepage or something going on with her body. She had used all of her money on every sort of doctor and no one could do anything about it. And after she gets healed, we pick up, Verse 32, and he being Jesus looked around to see who had done it, that is, touched him. Verse 33, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. This woman is praised for greatness of faith, faith that is unlike any that Jesus has seen. And yet, it says, when she shows up and answers for what's happened, Jesus is just wanting to know. He's not responding in harshness. He's not trying to condemn. He's not, you know, kind of slapping the hands of the kids in the cookie jar. Jesus is just wanting to, to find out what's happened because he detected that the power, as it says earlier in this chapter, that the power had gone out from him. And so he asks, and what happens? She comes in fear and trembling. And he said to her, he doesn't rebuke her. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you go well, or made you well, go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now, again, Jesus is on the scene. There is a terrible problem that no one can do anything about. He solves that problem. And what is the response? It's fear, it's trembling, it's amazement, it's being bewildered, it's an inability to cope with the magnificence of what's just happened. We don't have time to go through the rest of the book, but I'm just going to cover a few words uh, from each of these scenarios. Mark 6, 51, when Jesus is walking on the water, it says that the disciples were utterly astounded and afraid. Verse, uh, Mark 7, 37, the healing of the deaf man, it says they were astonished beyond measure. In Mark 9, verse 6, when Jesus has gone up on the mount uh, and the transfiguration has taken place, the disciples are seeing Jesus in his glory. It says that the disciples were terrified. 
The boy with the unclean spirit, afterwards it says that the disciples were afraid in Mark 9.32. Mark 10.24, the rich young man, and the disciples were amazed at his words. Mark 11.18, for the Jews feared him because all of the crowd was astonished. At this point, Jesus had just done a miracle, and all of the people were amazed at what's happened, and the, Jew, the Jews, the Pharisees and scribes, begin to fear. In Mark 12.17, when Jesus presents the greatest attempt or the greatest demonstration at escaping uh, a trap through a wise answer, saying, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. It says they marveled at him. At Jesus' trial, when he's before Pilate in Mark 15, 5, but Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Over and over again in Mark, he gives a demonstration that when God acts, people are amazed. They're unable to understand. They're unable to cope. In Mark, divine intervention often leaves us even more afraid, not less. The women running from the tomb in the end of this chapter in great fear is, in my mind, a great fitting to the end of Mark's gospel, not just stylistically in that it fits in with Mark's overall theme and corpus, that is his body of work, but also because it has massively beautiful pastoral implications for you and for I. Through the resurrection, Jesus defeats death and frees us from the grasp. For the Christian, although all of us will die, death is not the final word for us. We believe and hope that we will be raised again to new life. Even so, in the resurrection, we see Jesus fulfill our need to overcome death, and yet a need still remains. What is that? Now, again, I don't wish to diminish the resurrection account or its significance in Christian theology, but in this story, there is still a great need. For us to be freed from fear, Jesus will ascend to the Father and pour forth the Spirit, who will pour into us the love of God, which Romans 5.5 says that the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Jesus will ascend, he will go to the Father, pour forth the Spirit, and the, and the Spirit will pour out the love of God into our hearts. For that love is a perfect love, and we know that perfect love casts out all fear. In the midst of the resurrection accounts, when the women run in fear, we see a need still for God's action. Though we anticipate his ascension coming up in a few weeks, today Jesus wishes to meet us, and he says to us at the table, fear not, for it is I. He invites you and I, and he says, come, dine with me, engage with me, uh, spend some time with me. And he presents to us that today that here at this table. All of our fears, all of our anxieties, all of the times where we see God interact, and yet we seem even more bewildered, even more amazed at the end of the situation, at those times we require his love to, to come and to melt our hearts to respond in faith and not doubt and not terror. Like these women had run out from the tomb seeing God's miraculous dealings, we too are under a temptation, possibly, to see God act and yet still doubt his goodness and be afraid because we're not in control. And so not only do we need to be uh, filled with the love of God so that all fear would be cast out, but we also need to realize that God in his sovereignty and provision for us in what he's doing in demonstrating his love through defeating our enemies and raising us to new life, that in that place, we are not in control. I think that that's ultimately what amazes everyone in the book of Mark. Um, 
everyone who goes time and again to Jesus and experiences this healing, this deliverance, this amazement, I think the reason that they're slightly afraid, that they're terrified, that they're amazed, is because they demonstrate one who has power that demonstrates authority that they need to recognize. And that's what we see in Jesus' resurrection. He defeats death on our behalf, and because of that, we recognize his lordship over life and death. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mighty word. We do ask, Lord, that you would give us the ability to see your resurrection, to behold it, for it to be real to us, and yet, by the power of your Holy Spirit, not tremble in fear or cower in unbelief or run away silent. Lord, we pray that as we sang today that we would go and tell of your goodness to all those who are in our lives, all those who we encounter. Lord, we ask that you would cause us to long for the day where we would see you face to face, that we would not only hope to be with you when we depart bodily, but also that we would long for your creation to be renewed, restored, redeemed, that we would see you in our flesh, that we would that in our flesh we would see God face to face. Lord, we do ask that you would be with us as we go forth this week, that we would encounter your presence, that your resurrection life would be demonstrated through everything that we say, everything that we do. Lord, we ask that you would send your spirit to attend to our day-by-day living, moment by moment, that we would rebuke uh, sinful thoughts and rebuke sinful actions and sinful responses, and walk by the Spirit, being filled with the knowledge that you, Jesus, have defeated death and you have removed the sting of sin from us. Lord, we pray that you would give us this wonderful grace this week. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.